second reading for today comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, beginning with the 12th verse. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye... Where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our respectable members are treated with greater our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior members, that there is no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, Various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if you lived in ancient Greece or Rome, if there's one thing that you knew without a doubt, it was where you fit into society. Society in ancient Greece and Rome was very segmented and a very clear hierarchy. You had the, at least in ancient Rome, you had the old patrician class at the top, these landed aristocrats, many of whom could trace their lineage back to, or so they claimed, the gods and goddesses themselves. You had underneath them, you had this uh, merchant class, merchant class who, you know, again, brought goods all over the Roman Empire and made lots of money. Underneath them, you had... Uh, Roman citizens who were sole proprietors of things, either small farmers or perhaps people who owned their own shop. And then underneath that, you had people who would work in these shops or were day laborers, many of whom were not Roman citizens. And beneath that, you had slaves. 
There was a very clear hierarchy to society. You knew where you fit into the mix. And in order to reinforce these things, Romans and Greeks, the ancient Roman and Greek philosophers, actually had appeals to nature to show that this is the way things should be in this hierarchy. Just look at nature. Famously, Aristotle, when he wrote his uh, great work on politics, uh, talked, about, talked about what he called natural slavery. Of course, slavery is there. Some individuals are just naturally slave-type people. So yes, of course, slavery should exist. You see this same reasoning, this same appeal to science come up in American society at various times. If you've ever read Ayn Rand, uh, she relies on some of Aristotle's reasoning to form her philosophy of objectivism. Or if you go back to the 19th century, there was an entire scientific discipline known as phrenology that would actually measure the size of your skull and based on the size of your skull could make various determinations about your personality, uh, about your intelligence, uh, about whether you were a criminal mind or not. Of course, this was just blatant racism that was given scientific backing, but it's something that's not new. One of the things that, again, the ancient Greeks and Romans would emphasize is uh, the natural lower place of women because they were apparently the weaker sex. How often have we heard that, you know, by various people making arguments, some appeal to nature. Well, one of the arguments that people would always do also in ancient Greece and Rome is they'd appeal to the body as an example of how the hierarchy of society should function. The head is clearly the best part of the body. It's where your thinking comes from. It's where the direction comes from. It's how you can see. Therefore, the head logically fits with those who are in charge. This is the way it should be. And so on down. Look at the body. If you want to know that hierarchy should exist in society, look at the body. There's clearly a hierarchy of greater and lower things in the body. That's the way things should function. Now, in the church at Corinth, the church of Paul's writing to, if you've spent any time reading 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you know that things in the church in Corinth weren't exactly great. There were divisions over practically everything you can imagine in the church at Corinth. There were divisions over table fellowship, over serving agape meals and who should partake in this and who shouldn't and who gets the food and who shouldn't. There were disagreements about uh, various interpretations of sexual mores. There were interpretations about who belongs in the community and who doesn't belong in the community. Interpretations about the value of different gifts, most especially the speaking in tongues. And as Paul is writing to this church, he pulls on these, this analogy from nature, this analogy of the body, in order to try and encourage them to get along, saying, listen, you are all one body. But then Paul does something unusual. He upends any convention. He upends any expectations that someone might have had when they were reading through what Paul was saying. Paul then says, yeah, but all members of the body, they're all equal. Because every member of the body contributes a necessary aspect to the life of the whole. If you don't have hands, what good is the rest of your body? If you don't have ears to hear or eyes to see or feet to walk on, every part of the body, regardless of whether you think it's the dishonorable part of the body or not, every single part of the body is essential for the functioning of the body. Those reading this through would have been like, wow, this is radical. It fits in with the way that he introduces the passage for today, 
Where again, he mentions uh, the same thing he mentions in the letter to the Galatians, where in Jesus Christ, of course, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. In Galatians, he adds, there's no longer male or female. For we are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not much of a surprise that in the early church, as the church developed in the first couple hundred years, it took on the structure, the hierarchy that was reflected in Roman society. You start to see in the church, uh, first the creation of bishops, overseers, and then presbyters underneath that. Then you start seeing deacons and archdeacons and sub-archdeacons, such that by the time you get to the 3rd or 4th century, there is this very clear hierarchy, even hierarchies among different sees, where certain sees, that is to say, dioceses where the, where the bishops are, certain sees are of more honor than others. There are certain great metropolitan sees, and eventually you see uh, the Bishop of Rome claiming to have preeminence over all the other sees in the western part of the Roman Empire, a natural evolution of this taking on of the hierarchy of the Roman Empire. In fact, the Pope... The Bishop of Rome even assumed the title in the 5th century, or in the 4th century, of Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. This is a title that had been held by a Roman official for nearly a thousand years, and then all of a sudden this same title, this ultimate example of the hierarchy of Rome, was then conferred on the Pope. And again, you see a lot of churches today that reflect this same hierarchy, the same hierarchy of Rome, where you have bishops and you have different Groups going on down, and certain churches are more strict about this than others. And there are a lot of advantages of that type of church. I mean, sometimes I do wish we had bishops in our church. <laughs> bishops allow, bishops and that type of hierarchy allow for efficient distribution of resources. If all of a sudden one church has a lot of resources and they're trying to support another church, a bishop can easily do that. Bishops can allocate and move around different priests or church workers in ways that could potentially benefit the whole. There is a real benefit to that type of hierarchical structure. But that's not the structure we see from Paul in the New Testament. From Paul in the New Testament, we see, we see something different. We see this structure where there is no hierarchy in the church of Paul. Instead, it is a living, pulsing body where all members are equal and all members bring their gifts to the table, where the Holy Spirit is working through all the members of the church. This is the type of church that Paul is laying out in 1 Corinthians 12. And indeed, like one thing that inspires me about working in First Congregational Church is when I see just this type of thing happening here. Where different people, different members of the church feel inspired by the Spirit to step up and do something and to use their particular gifts or calling for the greater body of Christ. I don't see Shirley Titus anywhere, but I was about to embarrass her. Uh, Where one thing I love about Shirley is that she likes uh, looking through the prayer list in the bulletin and making a practice of writing notes to everyone so that if you're on the prayer list, you get a note from Shirley a way for her to use her gifts. And others who I know will fill out those manila cards similarly when they see someone's name on the prayer list and put it in an envelope and then it will be sent to them to show that that person's thinking or praying for them. Or you see that, you know, today we, today one of the things we get to do at the annual meeting is celebrate the capital campaign uh, that we've been doing and I think about uh, a meeting I had, what was it, 
eight months ago or so with Ken McLaughlin, <laughs> where we sat down at dinner and I was talking about this capital campaign and how we really needed, uh, we, we really wanted to get this going. And I know that Ken had just finished this long capital campaign at Stages. And even though he didn't really have any time, and I'm sure that Brad was very angry at him for doing so, he's like, yes, I'll step up and, and, and lead the capital campaign. I'm like, there we go. Holy Spirit speaking <laughs> through the gifts of the members of First Congregational Church. Or this past week where I get to come into the office and see that uh, new safety features are installed in the office. Work done by a number of people here, but uh, you know, Guillermo is sort of organizing all the various contractors and estimates and different things to bring that about. Or I walk into the reception yesterday, right before the memorial service, and there in the kitchen uh, are people like Diane Foote and Kristen Kaiser and later on Mary Harvey and Jill Radelet and Linda Coonan as they're putting together this wonderful spread of food so that someone who's just gone through this horrible grief and has to go through the service can come out and there's food for them. I mean, think of all the gifts that people feel compelled to use and to spread. There are some people, I was having meetings today talking about the Church and Society Board and all the stuff that we're going to be doing this, this week. Sheila Patterson was talking about saying, hey, how can, we, how can we remember Black History Month this month and lift up some sort of voice against racism in this society? Carol Riley talking about how can we celebrate random acts of kindness and actually have examples out there so that it can inspire other people to do it. One thing after another, after another. One thing about this church is you can see the Holy Spirit working there. It is a manifestation of the very thing, the very vital, pulsing, alive body of Christ that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, this past week, I was reading a book by someone named Barbara Wendland uh, called Misfits the sort of secret strength of the church. And Barbara talks about growing up in a church and feeling somehow hamstrung, feeling as though, you know, there were just these pious platitudes being preached from the pulpit, how everything just seemed to be going through the motions, how there were a very clear sense of this is the way things should be done and this is the way things shouldn't be done. And she always felt as though she didn't belong. She felt like a misfit. She felt like it wasn't quite right for her. And yet the more time that she went through in her life, she realized that if the church has any hope going forward, it is the, it is the hope of the gifts of the misfits that's going to make it happen. Those people who want to challenge some of the pious platitudes and say, let's think more deeply about the church to think about how our faith intersects with our actual life. People who want to go out and try some sort of new ministries that might be coming up. Hey, let's go start a farmer's market. Why not? There's no farmer's market here. Let's make it happen. It's the misfits that are going to transform the church. Those who don't necessarily fit in, but feel God calling them in a particular way, leading them to try something new, to stand up and say, hey, maybe this is what we should do next. That creativity, that dynamism is what's going to make the church happy and thrive in the years to come. Now, at various points, I've run into someone who will you know, get me into an argument about the existence of God. Does God exist? Does God not? And they're all, they're all sort of fun arguments we can get into, and I could go into details right now, but I, we can do that afterwards. <laughs> but in a postmodern context, when people talk about the existence of God, we know that God exists because we see examples of God's action in the world. There is proof of God existing, and therefore you can point to that and say, you don't believe God exists? Well, here. Here's an example of God's action in the world. That's the answer that I would give to someone who says, does God exist? And there is no better example of that in my mind than church. 
Someone says, oh, does God exist? And I say, well, come to church. There's no reason why anyone here needs to be here. There's not like there's some sort of threat of hell hanging over your head that if you don't come here, you're going to go roasted for all eternity. A lot of you have got a lot of good things to do on Sunday morning. There are all those great talk shows you can be reading. There's times you can spend on your phone, especially if you're younger and you spend your entire life on your phone anyway. Why not spend just a few more hours? (laughs) There's sleep, that glorious thing, sleep, of which we get so little of. All these different things are pulling us away. And yet, you get out of morning, you get out of bed in the morning, you come here to worship God. To try and make yourselves a better person, you find a connection with the Holy Spirit here. The fact that you come here week after week, Listen to those gifts that they come through you and contribute your time and your money and your resources. If you want an example and evidence of God existing, I am looking at the evidence of God existing right before me, right here. In that living, pulsing, alive, very much alive body of Christ. Now, after this service, we're going to have a nice potluck. It's always interesting to see the array of food out there. It's Always oh, a diversity of food. Have a nice potluck, have some time together, and come back into this space for the annual meeting. It's a time when we get to look back and celebrate all the things that the church has done in the past year and also look at what we have going forward in the future. I am someone who's incredibly hopeful about the future of this church because I see all of the great ministries that are going on and I see the living example of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 here at First Congregational Church. Do all of the same gifts No. Thank God for that. But as long as you're listening to the gifts, willing to be a misfit, willing to try something different, wanting to go make it happen, listening to how the Holy Spirit is moving in you, and we're talking about it together, there is nothing but great things in store for us. I am hopeful for the future of First Congregational Church, and I hope you are too. As long as you listen to how that Spirit is there, and we live into that calling to be the body of Christ.